Uh, I'm excited to speak to you guys tonight. Uh, what Michael has given me was about 12 pages of notes, so we got a lot of material to cover, and I'm going to do my absolute best to try to get through this. If you know me, which I think most of you do, you know I'm long-winded, so uh, I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can, but also as, uh, as clear as I can, okay? So what we're talking tonight uh, about the divine counsel is kind of a deep subject, but we're going we're gonna to work through it together and uh, have a good time, all right? So let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get started, all right? Let's do it. Father God, we love you, and we praise you, and we just glorify you. And tonight, I pray that uh, it would be you speaking tonight as we dive into your word and dive into uh, what you're trying to teach us tonight. I pray that uh, what we receive tonight, we would, first and foremost, we would be open to receive uh, what you have for us tonight, Father God, that the walls would be uh, torn down and we would be ready to receive the word tonight, Father God. And I pray that it would just impact us uh, in our souls and our minds and our spirits tonight, that it would leave us different than when we came in tonight, Father God, and that afterward we can just give you glory and give you honor and give you praise tonight because of what you're doing in our lives tonight. Father God, we lift up Michael and uh, Mike as they're traveling back tonight. We pray that you would just be with them, be with their flight, be with uh, be with them for safe traveling tonight, Father God, and just get them home. Uh, we're excited to hear what, they've, uh, they, what they have received from uh, this missions banquet. We're excited to hear what God's doing in other countries and through these missionaries around the world. Uh, and so we just pray for uh, safe passage for those guys tonight. Father, and we also lift up what's happening on the other side with the youth, what's happening in the back with the kids. We're not just babysitting. Father God, we are discipling tonight. We are making disciples. And I pray that you would just, uh, your spirit would just flow through this place tonight, Father God, and just leave us all better and just praising you and giving you the glory and giving you the honor. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right. So like I said, the last couple of weeks you guys have been talking about uh, spiritual beings and things that are happening in the spirit realm, things that we, uh, we can't necessarily put our eyes on, uh, but you can most definitely know that they're there. You can feel that they're there. You can sense that they are there. So tonight, we're going to talk about something that goes a little bit more than that. So what is the, what is the divine counsel? What is that? Is it just spiritual beings? You think about the spirit realm. You think about, uh, you think about God. You think about angels, Satan, and demons. You, you think about all these things, but what is the role of all these different angels? What is the role of all these different uh, spiritual hosts? What are they doing up there? Are they just sitting around uh, talking? Are they sitting around worshiping? Like what is actually happening at this divine council? So tonight we're going to dig into that. We're going to kind of pull it out. Uh, Like I said, there's a lot of notes here, a lot of material. So we're going to kind of try to run through it uh, as quickly and as clearly as possible. Uh, So bear with me. And in the middle, I'll kind of break it up. We'll have some, uh, you know, a couple minutes of table discussion here and there. And then at the end, uh, we'll take up prayer requests at your table, pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll be on the way out. Sound good? Okay, so uh, we're talking about the divine counsel, and the portrait of the ordained world and fundamentals to understand is this, this is part of the biblical storyline. We need to understand this why. Like, why is this important for us to understand? Well, it's not a heaven or hell issue. This is not a you have to know this to get into heaven. There's not going to be a pop quiz when we walk through the pearly gates. That's not going to happen here. But what this does help us do is understand the word a little bit deeper. So when we read things in Scripture, we can come back and say, oh, I get that on a much deeper level. I understand that because of this study, what this is actually talking about, not just on a human level, but also what's happening on a spiritual level, what's happening in this realm that we cannot see and that we can't understand fully, right? 
So what is the divine council? Think about it this way. The divine council is like God's staff or God's team. Think about what we have kind of going on here at the church. We have Michael. I'm not calling Michael God, but think of Michael as the leader. God is the leader. And then we have the staff. His staff is the one that helps make decisions, helps make things happen, these kind of things. God doesn't need the help because he's God. But we have a good God, and he likes to share in authority, just like he put humans here on earth to give us authority over the things that happen here on earth. He has given the divine counsel authority over the heavens, okay? So that's what's happening with that right there. He's delegating authority, all right? So uh, he's... Um, they were invited by God to participate in making decisions, making decisions about things that are happening here on earth. So the titles of divine counsel, so when you read through scripture, they're all going to have different titles. They're, they're going to be called a bunch of different things, not just the divine counsel. So right here in Psalm 89, 5 through 7, you'll see like they're called the holy ones, or you'll see they're called the sons of God, the counsel of the holy ones, or Yahweh, God of hosts. So this, when you read that in scripture, that's, they're referring to the divine counsel, the ones in heaven that are God's staff, okay? These various titles are used throughout much of scripture, and when we read that, you'll see it in, in, in books like Job and Jeremiah, and if you want to look on the chart on the next page, you'll see some examples of that right there. The focus is on humans who occasionally, uh, they get glimpses into God's heavenly throne room, okay? So for Jeremiah, he is getting a glimpse into the divine council, getting a glimpse into heaven to kind of see what's going on there. For Job, Job is not actually the one getting the glimpse, but we're reading his story kind of from an overview of his story. So we're kind of the ones seeing what's happening on the spiritual side, but then we also read Job's story and we're seeing what's happening on the human side as well. So this is, this is a way of letting us in to see what's happening on that spiritual side, what's happening on that side with God and the heavenly throne, okay? So like I said, you'll read right there in Job, uh, those glimpses into glory, Job 38, 4, it says, when the stars of the morning song are seen together, that's them coming together. Next one down, Job 1, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, right? So Jeremiah 23 on the other side. But who has stood in the council of Yahweh? So this, again, this examples of them getting a glimpse of what's going on in these heavenly council meetings, these divine council meetings, what's going on. And again, right there in Job 15, 7, 8. Have you listened in on the divine council? So again, this is just getting a glimpse of what is going on in heaven when all their, when, when God and his divine council are meeting and they're talking about things, about what's to come and all these different things, okay? I love the quote right here uh, from Michael Heiser on the divine council where it says, when all of these texts are read together, a fairly clear picture emerges. God is constantly depicted on his heavenly throne, surrounded by his staff team who participate in discussing and then carrying out God's plan. The divine throne room is the place from which Yahweh governs the world with his heavenly council. Again, he's sharing authority. The place where Yahweh decrees directing the human community and the divine world. So again, he's directing humans and he's directing the spiritual world at the same time right there. The world are set forth and through whom they are communicated and enacted. Okay? So that's a good way to kind of start getting it in your mind. There is a human world that we see. We obviously see all of us sitting in this room. But then there's also a spiritual realm where things are happening where we can't see. And all of those discussions and all of those things that are happening here on earth in the spirit realm are being discussed in those meetings, in those council sessions, okay? 
So what is the role of the divine counsel? What's the role of it? This concept helps us to make sense of one popular and puzzling uh, passage here in Isaiah 6. So we're not going to take time to read the whole thing. But right down here at the very, very end, it talks about whom shall I send and who will go for us. So we need to pay attention to that right there. Because in all these texts, we see a a positive portrayal of the divine counsel functioning in their ideal role. And notice how the role is parallel uh, to the human role. So we, God has given humans authority here on earth just as he has given spirits authority in heaven, okay? And right here we talks about whom shall I send and whom will I go. This is actually God, Yahweh, speaking on behalf and representing both himself, where it says whom shall I send, that's him representing himself, and then also the divine counsel where he says who will go for us, who will go on our behalf. So that is Yahweh speaking and representing not only himself, but also the divine counsel. So this is, a, this is the part right here where we need to kind of slow down a little bit and hit this part. So the heavenly and earthly rebellions in Genesis 1 through 11. Now as I was studying this, I found it very interesting that in just 11 chapters, we find in the very first 11 chapters of the, of the Bible, we find three rebellions. That's not, a pretty, that's not a very good average, if you ask me. In the first 11 chapters, we have three rebellions, okay? So what's the, what, are the, what are these? It's a rebellion on the human side, but it's also a rebellion on the spirit side, and they're connected. And we're going to see how they're connected as we go on later tonight. But before we do that, I want to read this scripture to you, and I want you to have this scripture on your mind as we continue tonight. Because once we get to the very end, I'm going to wrap it up with it again, and hopefully this is kind of the thing that will seal it back together and make it all kind of make sense, okay? And it's Ephesians 6, verse 12. Go ahead and write that down. Ephesians 6, verse 12. And it says this. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of the darkness, evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. I'll read it one more time. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of the darkness, evil and spiritual forces in heaven. Okay, so let's keep that verse on the back of our mind as we go through this tonight. And I promise at the very end, I will wrap it up with that verse again. And we'll, it all should go, oh, okay, that makes sense. I got you now. So back to these rebellions, okay? What are these three rebellions that God speaks of? And we see in just the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Well, obviously the first one is, is Genesis 3. It's the fall of man. It's Adam and Eve uh, eating, uh, eating from the tree that they're not supposed to. They were, they, were, they were tricked by Satan. They were tricked by the enemy. They were tricked by the snake. And that is the first rebellion, the fall of man. The second one comes three chapters later, which is Noah and the flood. Okay, so everybody knows Noah built the ark to get his family up out of the up out of the up out of the flood because God was just so sick and tired of the of the mess that was happening on on earth, the rebellion that was happening on earth. He just wiped it all out and he took Noah and his family and kept them safe. So that's the second rebellion. And the third rebellion, which doesn't get talked about as much as the first and the second rebellion, doesn't get talked about as much as Adam and Eve and Noah and the ark and things like that. It's actually in Genesis 10 and 11, and it's the Tower of Babel. So we're going to talk about that one tonight. Why is the Tower of Babel so important in Scripture? Why is the Tower of Babel so important for, to us, for us to understand what's happening on a human side, but then also what's happening on a spiritual side, because they are connected. So we're going to talk about that. Like I said, it's the least familiar of these rebellions, and we're going to focus on that rebellion here, highlighting Genesis chapter 3 and 6, and we'll talk about those later on 
uh, down the line. So the third rebellion of the divine council is in Genesis 10 and 11. So after Noah's sons and their wives got off the ark, okay, so this is after the flood, uh, they're off the ark. They were told to disperse and go their own ways, each becoming a network of people groups that developed their own language, okay? So you'll see right here on, that, on, the, on the graph on the very next page, you kind of see what's happening. So Genesis 10.1, it talks about Noah and his three sons, that's Shem, Ham, and Japhoth, okay? So those are three. And then the next verses down talk about how each son, it may be on the, it may be on the not on the next page for y'all, but it's, it's right there. There's four little verses right there in those boxes. Um, it talks about right there Noah and his three sons, and then the three sons, how they separated from Noah, and then they went, and each one had their own language. Each one. So Japheth had his own language. Ham, by their clans, their languages. And then Shem, his, his days in the land was divided and also was their languages, okay? So that's very important. We need to understand why. They weren't just given their own languages just because. Something happened for their languages to be separated. Something happened where they were divided out. Something happened where these languages, they become different, right? And I'm going to tell you what happened. So the three sons of Noah, listed along with all their many descendants, make up about 70 nations. About 70 nations, okay? But notice that each list ends with the phrase, like I said, each with their own language. So when we look at this and we look at chapter 10, the story assumes that the nation has already been divided. Okay, so it's a little bit of foreshadowing that's going hard. It's kind of a little bit of setting up. Chapter 10 is setting up chapter 11. So 10 is kind of telling you you're getting the movie teaser. You're getting the movie trailer in chapter 10, and then the movie comes out in chapter 11. Does that make sense? So that's setting up chapter 11. The story assumes that nations are already divided with their own languages. However, the story has not been told yet because we haven't got to chapter 11. The division of the descendants of Noah is connected to an obscure comment in Genesis 10.25 where it talks about the days of Peleg. The land was divided. If you go ahead and read that on down, you'll see that there's in the, lay, in the days of Peleg, which means the land was divided. So whatever it was separated the nations into languages is called, there is a division that's happening right here. It doesn't really talk about it in chapter 10. Like I said, it kind of hints at it. But we need to understand that something happened here that caused the people to be divided, their languages to be divided, and their, and their, their communities to be divided, okay? And we're going we're gonna to find out what that is here in just a second, okay? So this leads to this obvious conclusion in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. They're not arranged in chronological order. They're not exactly telling it in, in the order that it should be told. It's kind of doing it backwards, all right? So we got to read chapter 11 to kind of figure out what's happening. What is chapter 10 talking about? we got to read chapter 11 to get there, okay? So let's check out chapter 11 and find out what's really going on, okay? So right there on the bottom, you'll see that we're not going to read the whole thing uh, for time's sake because, like, like I said, we got a lot to get through. But right there, that bolded part, it says, Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. So what's happening here is after Eden, after being exiled from Eden, Adam and Eve were forced to go east, okay? They were forced to go east. After the, the fall of man, they were, they were kicked out of the garden. They were exiled from the garden, and God told them, go east, okay? After Cain killed Abel, Cain was told, go even farther east, 
So you see kind of, you see kind of what's happening here is God is pushing them east. He's pushing them further, further and further here. And so too here, after surviving the flood, humanity journeys east. And what we see right here is that, like, like I said, they're continuing to go east, but they're not quite fulfilling what God has told them to do. You see, in Genesis 9-1, he told Moses, or not Moses, he told Noah after they came off the ark, he said, be fruitful and multiply. Now, everybody kind of hears that verse, and we all kind of, you know, we know what we're talking about when it says be fruitful and multiply, right? I think everybody kind of knows and gets it. Let's all be adults. I'm not speaking in youth tonight, so, you know, we can kind of get there, all right? Be fruitful and multiply. But the part of that verse that kind of gets left out and doesn't get talked about as much is the last part. And it says, and fill the land. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. Meaning, spread out. Don't just stay in one spot and and congregate together. No, no, no. I want you to be fruitful and I want you to be multiplied. Meaning, I I want you to build families and I want you to build community. But I don't want you to do it all right here. I want you to fill the land. I want you to spread out. Well, how many of you know... Humans are going to human, and we're not always going to obey. Or we're going to do like two-thirds of what we're supposed to do, but then that last part we're going to be like, yeah, I'm kind of comfortable right here. I think I'm just going to stay right here. I don't really feel like moving or going east or west or north or south. I'm just going to stay right here. And that's exactly what happened. They disobeyed God, and they didn't fill the land. Instead of spreading out and filling the land, Noah's descendants decided to do the exact opposite They banded together in an effort to avoid dispersing, okay? So the city and the tower that they are building is not just an average building project. Some some of, you know, you think of like like a tall building, like some of like, you know, the World Trade Centers or, you know, the Burj Khalifa in, in, you know, overseas, wherever that place is. So you think about these tall buildings, but what this building is, is not just a building. It's not just a city. What they're doing is they're building a temple. That's what they're building, a place of worship. So it makes sense that Babylon is kind of the anti-Eden because what they're doing is they're trying to build a place, a temple, so high to reach back up into the heavens that now they've connected back with God themselves. So God has exiled and kicked them out of Eden, but now the building of the tower is human's way of trying to get back to heaven. Like in the previous weeks, y'all, y'all understand that, he, that heaven and earth are not two separate circles, but there's a place in the middle where they overlap, right? You can see this. You can sense that on Sunday morning where heaven's not over here happening and earth is over here happening. But on Sunday mornings, you can feel the spirit move in the room. That's heaven and earth connecting right there. When you have your prayer time at home, that's heaven and earth connecting right there. And because of Jesus, we don't have to go into a holy of holies place. Because of Jesus, the veil was torn, and we can meet with Jesus anywhere we wanted to. But in this day and age, they had to fight to get to Jesus. They had to fight to get to God. And so this is their way of saying, we're going to get to God on our own terms. We're going to do it our way. And we're going to build this really, really large tower, and we're going to climb this tower, and we're going to get to heaven and take over and do it our way. This is what they're trying to do. This is what the Tower of Babel is all about. They're trying to get there. And not only that, it's a temple. It's where they worship not God, but these little, these little G gods. They don't worship the God. They worship these little G gods, these ideologies that fall so far beneath God. It's a temple. Temples were a place where the divine and the human realms overlap. That's why they say in the verse, it said, let its, let its top be in the heavens. Meaning where we're going or where we're trying to get to 
is back to heaven. That's where we're trying to get to. That's where we're trying to go. So this story presents Babylon as a, a human attempt to reverse humanity's exile from Eden. So Babylon is an anti-Eden where humans try to ascend to the skies and assert themselves over God's wisdom and authority. This is why God scatters them. This is exactly why God scatters them, resulting in the diverse languages, 70 scattered nations in Genesis 10, and the story is clearly focused on the human side of the story, right? When we read this the first time through, you see, you really just kind of understand, okay, the humans are trying to do something bad, they're trying to build this tower, and then God scatters them bad humans. Shame on you humans. But what we have to understand is there's something happening behind the scenes here that we're not seeing, that we kind of have to dig into a little bit more, because there's something happening on the, on the other side, on the spiritual realm, that's causing these humans to do the things that they're doing, causing these humans to act in a way that they're acting. It wasn't just a human rebellion, it was a spiritual rebellion as well. It doesn't just end there. So what is the significance of scattering of Babylon, okay? What is the significance of that? So if you look at that, Moses, recall, Moses, now we're talking about Moses, he recalls the scattering of Babylon as a spiritual rebellion alongside the human rebellion in Deuteronomy 4 and 32, okay? Those verses are right there below that. So Deuteronomy 32 recalls the rebellion in Genesis 10, 11, and invites us to link these two stories together and view the rebellion and the scattering of Babylon as a joint human and spiritual rebellion. So again, we're talking about not just humanistic things, we're talking about a spiritual rebellion that's going on as well. Humans wanted to build their own pseudo-Eden mountain where they'd have access to eternal life, and now we learn that there are some sons of God involved as well. So like I said, not just humans making decisions, but they're being influenced and they're being persuaded by things on the spiritual side as well. And according to Deuteronomy 4, are now being worshipped by these nations. So right there in Deuteronomy 4, it says, those those which the Lord your God has allotted, remember that word right there, allotted, because we're going to talk about it here in just a second, allotted. Those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole, ev- under the whole heaven, but the Lord has taken you to be the people for his own possession as today. And then over on Deuteronomy 32, 8, verse 9, right there in that, uh, in that bolded part right there, it says, when the Most High Yahweh allotted the nations, allotted the nations. So what, is, what are we talking about? When we talk about allotted the nations, what does that mean? Well, if you look at what allotted means, it means assigned, given, temporarily handed off to. That's what the allotted means right there. Meaning what? That when God scattered the people at the Tower of Babel, that land was now allotted to those evil people and those evil spirits. God temporarily said, you're going to have this land. This land is yours Go and worship the gods that you want, and don't worry, because I'm going to come back for it later. But as of this moment, this belongs to the spirits. This belongs to the little G gods. This belongs to the humans, the ones, the rebellious spirits, and the rebellious humans. Right now, it's been allotted to them. It's been given to them. And in Deuteronomy 4, Moses warns the Israelites. So I think this is a cool little, little connection right here. So when Moses and God bring the Israelites out of captivity, out of Egypt, out of captivity, and then they wander the wilderness for 40 years, and when they come out and they're ready to go into the land of Canaan, and they're ready to go start taking back the promised land that was promised to them, this promised land that they're about to go take over is the same land that's been given, allotted to these rebellious spirits. 
So this the Israelites, God's plan was to take back the land with the Israelites. Now, obviously, we know the Israelites failed at this, right? Failed miserably at this. But this was God's plan was to use the Israelites to go and take back the land that God scattered them on. So it says it right here in Deuteronomy 4, Moses warns the Israelites who are going into the land of Canaan that the nations around them worship animal gods as well as the host of heaven. So they're not just worshiping uh, animals and, and, and golden calves and all these things. They're also worshiping little g-gods, these gods that have fallen from heaven, these, these rebellious spirits. They're also worshiping them. And notice his remark, God has allotted, we talked about that already, these spirits to be over the nations, so that the nations worship them and serve them, not our creator, God. In contrast to the nation of Israel, whom Yahweh redeemed in the Exodus story. This raises questions, when did, when did the nations get handed over the spiritual beasting? Uh, let me read that again. This raises the question, when did the nations get handed over to spiritual beast, beings to worship them? Again, right here in Deuteronomy 32. We talk about that. The Tower of Babel happens, they get scattered, and this is now the land that God eventually did take back, and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But this is the land that was set aside for the Israelites when they came out of captivity. This is the land, the promised land that we always talk about. This is the land that they were going to go back and take, all right? But we obviously know, again, the Israelites failed pretty miserably at that. So, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses recalls an event from the distant past when Yahweh allotted the nations. This is a clear reference to Genesis 10 and 11 and the list of 70 nations in the scattering of Babylon. The scattering of Babylon. Moses says then, is when Yahweh allotted the 70 nations according to the number of the sons of God, while he kept Israel for himself as a special portion. All right, so again, the nation's over there, but he kept Israel for himself. He kept the Israelites as a special portion to himself, okay? So the pro- what, do, what are we talking about? The prophets. Let's talk about the prophets for a few minutes. They're referencing the Babylon rebellion. They're referencing things in, in, in the books of Isaiah. We talk about the book of Isaiah here. He's, he's even referencing Babylon. So what we read in Genesis, all the way back in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, is now making its way all the way through the Old Testament, and even right when, in just a few minutes, we'll talk about, it's going to make its way all the way into Jesus' time. Jesus even starts to reference these things. So this is very, very important information to understand, because if we can understand what happened on a human, humanistic level and on a spiritual level, what happened in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, then we can understand the Bible even deeper and even in more meaning, and even in more, uh, in, on a deeper level, and understanding the human side of it, we can read the stories of Abraham, and, and, and all the prophets, and Jesus, and Paul, and understand that, because he was a human just like us, but if we can understand it on a spiritual level, then we can understand that there's a spiritual realm, and a spiritual side to everything that's happening, on, on, you know, on a side that we can't see, it deepens our knowledge of God, it deepens our knowledge of his love, the way he came back, because we're not just fighting against flesh and blood. Remember that we're not just fighting against the, or, or, we're not just fighting against humans, but we're fighting against spiritual things, things that we can't see, things that we can't under, fully understand. So, in order for us to fight things that we can't see, we're going to have to do things a little bit different, right? That's the point that I want to get across to you guys. Is in order to fight things that you can't see, sometimes you're going to have to do things a little bit different. Okay. So we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. So uh, right here in Isaiah 14, 15, 
It says right here, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly, and I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. This is the rebellious spirits talking now. This is saying, this is our plan. We're going to try to get above God. That's what we want. We want the power. We want the worship. We want all of this. We want to be above God. So there is a human rebellion. It's linked, but it's also spurred on by spiritual beings and that rebellion. Because when you hear the spiritual rebellion, re- rebels talk about, we want, the, we want the, the praise. We want the worship. We want, we want all of it. How many of you know, how many, how many humans have you seen do things or say things where it comes across as, I want the praise. I want the honor. I want the glory. You see, it's not just humans that are doing it, but it is a, it is a spiritual rebel behind humans that are spurring them on, that are encouraging them to seek after all the wrong things, encouraging them to be prideful, encouraging them to seek after these things that are not going to get them to heaven, that are not going to get them closer to God. It's going to get them sent to hell. So there is a spiritual rebellion happening behind all these human things that we're seeing actually happen here on earth today. So behind the earthly empire of Babylon, Isaiah discerns a darker and more mysterious spiritual rebel that animates the earthly kingdom, okay? So there is something happening on the other side. There's something happening behind the human, the human egos and the human choices that we see are happening every single day in our world. There's something happening on the other side, and it is a spirit that's pressing all the buttons. It's a spirit that's persuading. It's a spirit that is spurring on these actions that we see humans make every single day. Again, remember Ephesians. Our fight is not with flesh and blood. Our fight is not with humans. Our fight is with the spirits that are pushing all the buttons and twisting all the wheels, okay? That's why that verse is in there. And the more we continue on and the more we read, I hope, I hope, my, my hope and prayer for you guys is to understand this is why God said the greatest commandments that you can hold is to love God and love me. Oh, what about the people that treat me wrong and do wrong to me? Love them because it's not them that's doing it to you. Oh, what about the people that talk behind my back and, and steal and kill and, and, and do? Love them because it's not them that's doing it. Oh, what about the people that, that talk bad about the church and they talk bad about pastors and they talk bad about Christians? Love them because it's not them that's pushing the buttons. Are y'all with me tonight? Are y'all feeling me tonight? Notice that in this poet, in, in this that this poetic description of a creature attempting to ascend to the heavens. This is talking about these spiritual rebels, talking about attempting to ascend to the heavens and and undermine and take over God's authority. It said right here, "I will sit on a mount of assembly," meaning I'm going to sit at the top, and everybody's going to be looking up to me. That maps precisely onto the story of the Tower of Babel that was made. To here it is in Genesis 11 4, 11 4. It says, Have its head in the heavens. So if you take that verse right there, sit on a mount of assembly and then have its head in the heavens, it's talking about the same thing. I'm going to be the one on top. The spiritual rebel and the human rebel, I'm going to be the one on top. I'm going to overtake God. I know better than God. I want the glory. I want the praise. I'm going to be the one on top. So again, this tower that they built, the human side of it was, that's, this is how we're physically going to get to heaven, right? This is how we're physically going to get to heaven. 
But on the, end, on the other side of it, there's a spiritual thing happening that's forcing them, that's persuading them, that's subduing them, that's spurring them on to build this table or this tower in the first place. That's what's happening here. This poem is portraying the spiritual dimension of the humans focused in the story of Genesis 11. And it's about one of the sons of God who rebels, tries to undermine God's authority, and is cast down. Now, we all know who that is, the one, the one that got cast down. It's obviously Satan. That's obviously, you know, the devil. Okay? Well, this sounds a lot like Genesis 3. Notice that this story is clearly recalling Genesis 11. So these stories are lining up. These things that we're talking about are lining up. How the world wants the authority. How the world wants this. And, but we can't look at the humans as the ones that are doing it. We have to understand there is a spiritual battle that's going on on the other side spiritual battle, okay? So we're going to take a break real quick. I'm going to give you guys a table discussion, and here's your table discussion. So I want you guys to discuss this with amongst your tables for about two, three minutes, and then we'll come back and we'll kind of talk about it, okay? So we see spirits guiding these humans here in, in Genesis to rebel, and that's still happening today. So let's take about two to three minutes and discuss what parts of our world are being spurred on and influenced by, re- by rebellious spirits happening today. What parts of our world are being spurred on by rebellious spirits? Y'all take a couple minutes and talk about it. All right, all right, all right. So uh, let's, let's talk about this question. So what, so what parts of our world do we, do we see and we notice that are, that are being influenced by these spiritual rebels? Come on, y'all give me some examples. What do y'all, what'd y'all kind of talk about at your tables? What, what, kind of, what are some examples y'all can give me? The music industry, that's a great one. That is a fantastic one. I actually wrote, that was my second one that I put on my list was the music. Government, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, definitely you see that in government right now. We sent Mike and Michael up there to overthrow the government, but they didn't, they didn't quite get that done. That's all right, though. So, yes, definitely in government, uh, definitely in music. You see it. Entertainment, TV, for sure. In school, yeah, definitely in school. Kids and family. What about sports? Definitely in sports. Definitely in sports. Say that again. Oh, definitely media. For sure, definitely the media. Social media. Definitely social media. This is a big thing that I try to, I try to get across to our teenagers over on the other side is be careful who you link yourself up with. Be careful what you link yourself up with. Be careful who you link yourself up with. And that goes for you guys, too. We can get so drawn into what's happening in politics, what's happening in music, what happened in entertainment, all these different things. We can get so drawn into these things that we forget what we're supposed to be doing in the first place. And remember, I think that's why this, I'm going to keep saying this verse, Ephesians 6.2, I believe it, what it was. I may have that wrong. 6.12. Sorry, I forgot the one. <laughs> Ephesians 6.12, we get so upset with politicians and presidents and governors and mayors and all these things, and we get so upset with them, but we need to remember we're not upset with the person. We're, 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 we're fighting the person behind them that's pulling all the strings. I remember a couple years ago, there was an artist, and y'all probably remember this too, uh, his name was Little Nas X. That's a, that's a real person, by the way. Little Nas X. And he put out these devil shoes. Y'all remember this? Y'all remember this? Yeah, it had blood in it and it ridiculous. 
ridiculous. And the amount of slander I saw on social media against this young man was just like, oh, my goodness. Do y'all even understand what you're saying? Y'all are ready to, like, kill this kid. But y'all need to understand that if you read his backstory, he was actually a church kid all growing up. He was in church his whole life and got church hurt by the people that called themselves Christians but sure didn't act like it. Church hurt. And you see where that has led him to now. Claims to be a homosexual. Claims to be a homosexual. Worships Satan. Makes these shoes and tries to sell them to our kids. And we're upset at him. When the truth of the matter is, there's something much deeper that's happening inside that young man. There's a spiritual battle that's happening, happening with that. So our fight is not against him. Our fight, is, our fight is what's happening behind the scenes with that young man. So let's remember that when we, when we turn on Fox News or CNN or the news or the entertainment situation, and we sit there and we go, I can't believe it. I hate that guy or that girl or I can't believe that person's in charge. Let's, let's just take a moment and breathe and understand that the victory has already been won. Right? Victory's already been won. Right? So let's not, let's, I understand there's a stress and there's an anxiety about, you know, we want our kids to be brought up in a, in a, in a, in a community that, that is led by God. And I understand that our world is not heading that way. But we need to understand that the victory's already been won. That God is going to come back. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take each and every one of us home. And he says, don't worry about that. I've already got that taken care of. Worry about raising up your kids to love me and to love people. And let me worry about these things. Amen? All right. So what is God's response to this rebellion? So we've talked about this rebellion. We've talked about this, this human rebellion, but it's being backed by a spiritual rebellion. We've talked about that. So what is, what is God doing? Is he just sitting up there on his hands saying, ah, whatever. I'll just, I'll just do something else. I'll go over here and you know, uh, that's a lost cause. I'm not worrying about them anymore. I could really just send another flood and, and wipe us all out. So maybe I'll do that. What's God's response to all of this? What is his response? And right here in Psalm 82, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to hit this last part down here where it talks about, and all you are sons of the Most High. So let's not forget, before they fell, they were still part of the divine council. So he's still talking to them like this. All of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like humans. All of you that rebelled, humans and spirits, all of you that rebelled, you will die like humans. This is the consequences for the rebels. This is the consequences for their choice, is they will die like us. And then this last part where it talks to us, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. That right there is a prophecy that Jesus is going to come and he's going to take it all back. Jesus is going to come and he's going to take it all back. So the solution is for God to do for all nations exactly what he did for Israel and the Israelites is to rescue us from slavery, from human and earthly rebels, and to possess all the nations. To possess all the nations. And how does he do that? Anybody want to take a guess? It's the reason we do it all. How does he take it all back? Jesus. 
Yeah, with Jesus. And we're going to talk about that right now. So where does Jesus fit into all of this? Where does Jesus fit into all of this? Okay? I know I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I'm doing that for, for time. This is a good opportunity for you guys to kind of go and study it on your own as well. We're not going to be able to get to all of it tonight. Um, but this is, like I said, this is some deep stuff. So take your time and study through this and, and come, to, come to your own revelations about things. So where does Jesus fit into all this? Where does Jesus, we know that God has said that uh, he's going to come back and all these rebels, they're going to fall, they're going to die just like humans, and that I'm going to send a rise, oh, son of God, and I'm going to take back what truly belongs to me. So where does Jesus fit into all of this? When God's kingdom comes in power, the dark spiritual powers need to be confronted and dethroned. That's the truth. Right now, there, there are dark spirits that are roaming the earth and doing whatever they want to, and they need to be confronted and dethroned. And this is precisely the mission Jesus saw himself fulfilling. And continually des- describes his treatment on earth by corrupt humans as orchestrated by dark spiritual forces. So let's look at Jesus' temptation and his arrest for a second. So Jesus' temptation. So everybody knows after Jesus was baptized, he went into the wilderness where he was tempted, Right? Tempted three different times. But here's the thing. Jesus was tempted with the same thing that those spirits were tempted with. But Jesus passed the test. The evil spirits and the rebellious spirits, they didn't. They failed. They wanted the pride. They wanted the glory. They took it and they ran with it. But when, that, when Jesus was offered, hey, all you got to do is bow down to me and I'll give you all of this. Because remember, who did it belong to at this point? So the enemy, the spirit, was rightfully saying, he's like, I own this right now. And if you bow down and worship me, I can give it to you. Because who owns it? Me. I own it. He's like, if you bow down and start worshiping me, I'll give you all of this. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. I know why I'm here. It's not to be tempted by you, and it's not to fall to you. I worship God and God alone. So Jesus passed the test where the rebels failed the test. And even right here, after Jesus' initial resistance against the spiritual power at work, behind the corruption of human kingdom, Jesus now launches his announcement into into God's kingdom. So after he walks in the wilderness and gets tempted three times, now he comes out and he says, I'm here, I'm ready to go, I'm about to do my thing, I'm going, I'm going to follow my disciples, and we're going to start making this thing happen. And how many of you know that when Jesus started to make waves, there were a lot of people that didn't like Jesus making waves? right? We see them all the time. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they didn't like Jesus making waves. But can we sit here and think for just a second? Was it the people that Jesus didn't like? Or was it the spirits on the other side of the people? Was it the spirits on the other side of the religious leaders that Jesus was actually fighting, right? Because if he was, think about it this way, if he was actually fighting the religious leaders, why wouldn't he just kick them out? I don't want you here. You're not good enough to hear what I have to say. But the truth is, every time Jesus stood up and said something and said something important, there were always religious, religious leaders around. Always. So he didn't kick them out, but instead what he was doing was he was coming and he was announcing his authority about what was about to happen here on earth to the spiritual rebels that were orchestrating the humans behind them. That's what he was doing. That's a big reason why he wanted the religious leaders in the room, because he wasn't just talking to just to the humans. He was talking to the spirits behind him too, right? 
Are y'all with me? That's why he wanted that. So Jesus launches his announcement of God's kingdom. And it all leads up to this conflict. It all comes to this breaking point right here in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is arrested. Right here in Luke 22, 52 through, 30, or 52 through 53. It said, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But check this out right here. But this hour belongs to you, the humans, the religious leaders, the human side, but it also belongs to the power of darkness. This is the spiritual side. So we see Jesus is not only talking to the people standing there physically in front of him, but he's also talking to the spirit rebels that are behind them pushing the buttons right here. He's not against the humans, but the ones behind him. He's also speaking to them. So let's talk about Jesus' death for just a second. Jesus' death. What did, what did that do? What did Jesus' death do? So it says, later the apostles viewed Jesus' crucifixion as primarily the result of spiritual evil powers that enslaved humans through idolatry and power. Right here in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8, it said, the rulers of this age, right, the rulers of this age, the people that ruled the land at this moment, it says, they messed up. He said, if they would have just understood what they were doing, none of the rulers of, rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They would not have done it. If they knew what was about to happen, they would not have done it. They would not have crucified him. So what exactly happened? What exactly happened when they crucified Jesus? It says the powers and the authorities switch sides. The powers and the authorities switch sides. So what happened is when Jesus died... He brought to light all the corruption that was happening. Jesus could have very easily called down legions of angels and it lifted him off the cross and he could have just taken over right then. But what good would that have done? It would have just been the same thing. But instead, he let them, he let them take over and die and let them kill him to prove the corruption and show the world the corruption that was actually happening and show them. And then the cool thing is that Jesus rose three days later, and the power of life and the power of resurrection overtook everything that was on the earth. And it says right here, he's like, now I am, I am authority over heaven and what? Earth. So when he rose and the power of Christ and the power of resurrection was in him and he rose three days later, he says, nah, -uh. not only do I rule in heaven, I've taken back earth as well. I've taken it back. So what just happened? What just happened? It says right here, it says, Adam and Eve, the original plan, they failed. Couldn't get it done. The sons of Noah, who were supposed to be fruitful and multiply and go fill the land, what did they do? They were fruitful and multiply, but they didn't go fill the land. They didn't separate. They didn't scatter. And they built this tower to try to get back. And they failed. The Israelites God's chosen people, chosen to come and take back the promised land. But what happened when they got in the promised land? They started, or what happened when they got in the wilderness? They started worshiping other gods. And they started to fall to these same idols that they had fallen to before. And they failed. But when Jesus came along, 
And when Jesus came on the scene, he said, nah, this time it's not going to fail. This time it's not going to fail. Come against me all you want to. Put me on a cross. Beat me. Whip me. Strip me of my clothes. Put a crown of thorns on my head. Put me on a cross. Stab me in my side. Kill me. Because at the end of the day, I'm coming back, not just for a little bit. He says, I'm coming back for everything. He's like, I am now authority over heaven and earth. Now go tell people. Go to all nations. See, before this, we couldn't go to all the nations because it was owned by others. It was owned by rebellious spirits. But when Jesus died on a cross and then came back three days later, he says, I now have authority over heaven and earth. Now go to all nations and tell people about me. So that's the power of Christ. That's the power of Christ and what he did on the cross for us right there. That's the power of Christ. So these spiritual beings, are they still active? Yeah. Are they still roaming around? Yeah. Are they still up to no good? Yeah. But we need to understand, again, Ephesians, we're not against humans. We're against spirits. So how do you battle spirits? We know how to fight against humans. We're pretty, pretty good at that. <laughs> how do you fight against something you can't see? How do you fight against spirits? How do you fight against rebels of spirits that go against God and want to tear your family apart? How do you fight against this, that want to tear your schools apart, and put all this nonsense into school to pull your kids away? How do you fight against this stuff? How do you do it? Ephesians 6, 10, verse 17. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to talk about it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We're not going to read it. I'm going I'm to do a little table discussion here in just a second. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. And I'm going to stop right there. And this is going to be our table discussion. I want you guys to talk about the full armor of God. I want to see, can you name them all? Can you name them and what they do? So talk about that for just a second, and then we'll come back. And then we'll finish up and talk about the armor of God and what they mean and what they are. And then we'll close up shop. So get a couple minutes and talk about them. All right. I'm going to give you a hint. There's six of them. Anybody know what they are? Somebody give me one. Helmet of salvation. Okay. What's another one? Breastplate of righteousness. Belt of truth. Three more. Sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Shield of faith, and there was one more. What's the peace? Which part is the peace? Shoes of peace. Shoes of peace. So we got helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, belt of truth, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and then the shoes of peace. How many of you knew them all? A lot of y'all. Good, 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 good. I want to hit on one just for a second. Just for a second. And it's the shield of faith. So we actually talked about this a little bit in, uh, in staff meeting at our prayer time on, um, on Monday. This is one of, the, one of the verses that Michael gave us to kind of study, and then we came back together and talked about it. And it was talking about the shield of faith. So I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and then we'll kind of we'll close up shop after this. It says, in addition to all this, after the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and your feet fitted with the readiness and the gospel of peace. In addition to all these, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Extinguish all the flaming arrows 
of the evil one, the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Think about this for a second. If somebody stood out in the parking lot and took a crossbow and shot it at the building, how much damage do you think they're going to do to the building? Probably put a hole in the wall, make Jason mad, you know? But they're not going to do much damage, right? Not much is going to happen with just a single arrow into the brick or, or the concrete out there. But a flaming arrow, it's a little bit different. Somebody shoots a flaming arrow into the wall. Now it's not the hole that we're worried about. It's what comes with it, which is the flames, which could burn the whole building down. And that's why it says put on the shield of faith, because I think so, much, so, 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 so many times we get attacked with these arrows, but it's not the initial attack that happens it's what happens after. It's the lingering effects, the fear, the anxiety, the depression that comes when an attack happens on us. It's not, it's not the initial attack that, that hurts us. It's the lying in bed at night when you can't get any sleep because it's all that you're thinking about. It's the, you can't even function through the day because it's all that's on your mind. And there's this flame of fear that continues to burn in you and burn in you and burn in you until you become this, this, this mess which says, put on the shield of faith. Why the shield of faith? Because I have faith that my God is so much bigger than my problems. I have faith that whenever the enemy attacks me or something comes against my family, and all I want to do is, is think about it and ponder on it and ponder on it, and God's saying, hey, I got this. Don't tell God about your problems. Tell your problems about your God. Y'all feel me? It's the flaming, it's, it's the flame, it's the after part, it's the lingering that hurts us in the long run. So let's put on the shield of faith, let's put on the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's be grounded in our word, people. Let's be grounded in our word, that it's on our hearts, it's on our minds, it's on our souls. That when something like this does come against us, the first thing we're not, the, the first thing we're not thinking about is, oh gosh, how am I going to get through this? The first thing we're thinking about is the word. As I remember what God told me, that he has not left me or forsaken me, that he has a plan, and it's all going to work for his glory and for his good. So that's what I'm going to stand on. James 1, 2, consider it pure joy when you walk through trials and struggles. Why joy? That seems like a backward verse. Why on earth would I be happy that I'm walking through crap? <laughs> That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But he's saying have joy because I have overcome all of that. Have joy because in the end, I am the victory. Have joy because in the end, it's not these, these things that come across your life are not there to tear you down, but they're, to, they're there to refine you and make you stronger. I tell this to our students all the time. Be happy when you walk through stuff. You want to know Why? Because there are people watching you walk through stuff. And you claim to be a Christian, they're going to watch how you walk through seasons of life. They're going to watch how you walk through struggles. And if you claim to be a Christian and a struggle hits you and the first thing you do is collapse and you just give up on life, they're going to say, why would I want any part of that? But if you claim to be a Christian and you say, you know what, I'm walking through stuff right now. It's not fun, but I know my God is good and my God is faithful and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to keep battling. I'm going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep reading my word and I'm going to keep trusting in him because I know that he is the victory. Someone's going to see that and be like, I want what they got. I want to know. They're, they're, they're going through a whirlwind right now, but they got a smile on their face. It doesn't make sense. I don't get it. 
So let's be strong in our word. Let's be strong on the sword of the spirit and in the shoes of peace. Let's be strong in all of this, okay? So I think, again, this is some deep stuff. This is some deep, deep knowledge of the word. But again, it's, it's not a heaven or hell issue. But it does help us understand our word just a little bit better and understand that when we read these stories uh, that we read all the time through scripture, that there's an underlying thing happening. There's a spiritual battle that's happening underneath all of these things. And we need to remember that. Again, who is our battle against? Darkness and spirits. And our battle is not against each other. Our battle is not against the President of the United States. Sorry, I went there. It's not. Our battle is against the darkness. Our battle is against the spirit. And how do we defeat this? How do we defeat those things? Armor of God. Are y'all with me this night? Are y'all with me tonight? Okay, here's what I want you to do. Uh, We got about a couple minutes. Uh, Let's do prayer requests at the tables real quick. And then we'll come back for like, Four minutes of Q&A, and I will do my absolute best. If I don't answer it, you can send all your questions to michael at cornerstoneliving.org. <laughs> so let's give it about four minutes, and then we'll come back and, and get a couple of questions, and then we'll wrap up. All right, we got just a couple of minutes left. Uh, let's take two questions. All right, let's, let's try two questions. And All right, good deal, good deal. Let's take, let's take two questions. Let's say two questions. If we got one, I will do my absolute darndest and best to try to answer them. Uh, but if there's somebody in the room that feels like they can answer it better than me, that's, let's, let's go. So anybody have a question about anything? No? Good. Then that means I did good. <laughs> okay, good deal, good deal. Okay, uh, well, if we don't have any questions, let's, uh, let's pray. And then... Uh, um, the students should be getting done. They're shooting for about 7.45, I think. Lauren's over there speaking tonight, so uh, she was nervous. But I was like, you do this better than I do. So, all right, let's pray. Father God, we love you, and we praise you, and we glorify you tonight. And Father God, we're so thankful for what your word says and, and how we can just dig deeper and dive deeper into what your word says tonight, Father God. And Father God, I pray that as we leave this place tonight, we will remember Ephesians 6.12. That, we're, that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against what's happening on the other side. Our battle is against these, these spiritual rebels that are pulling all the, all the strings and, and guiding and, and subduing uh, humans tonight. Let us remember that, that our battle is not against each other. God, you have called us to love you and love people. Regardless of how they treat us, regardless of how they talk about us, you have called us to love them. And Father God, that is what's going to change this world, is love. It's the greatest tool that we have. It is the greatest power that we have is the love of Christ. And I pray that each and every person in this room will be put in situations to use the love of Christ, to be a part of the love of Christ. Give them divine appointments where they have the ability to share exactly who you are and what you've done. And Father God, I thank you again for what your word tells us and teaches us. And I pray that it just wouldn't fall on deaf ears and just be another Wednesday night where we check the box. But from this moment on, we will be changed forever because of what we've learned tonight. And Father God, again, we lift up uh, Pastor Mike and Pastor Michael as they travel back home. We pray that they would uh, make it back and, 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 be, and be here with us on Sunday tonight. We pray that for safe travels for them tonight, Father God. And Father God, again, we love you and we praise you and we glorify you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen.